This time the kids and youth are dismissed. Good morning. There you go. The first service, you'd think them being bright-eyed and bushy till at 9 a.m. would respond to the good morning, but got to drag it out of them, you know? It's almost like they need more sleep or something. Um, this morning, we're continuing our current sermon series. We're working through our way through Advent. We're talking about encountering Emmanuel. Um, and I think the, the significance of, of this, for at least for me, is coming in is that you know, an encounter is um, something that's unexpected. Um, it's an unexpected experience uh, that's often difficult and sometimes hostile. I think the, when we think about encounters, like, oh, that's just a, an, a, an event, something that happened. But I think just that, that book uh, definition is actually really helpful, especially as we go to this story about about Gabriel and Mary, right? Like that's an encounter. Um, but also we wanted to focus on this idea of encountering Emmanuel because this season is, is, is asking us to hold a lot of different things, right? Like Advent is a very significant time of year for the worldwide church, for the historic church, for many different reasons. One of which is that we're celebrating not just Jesus the Christ or Jesus the baby or Jesus the king, but we're celebrating Emmanuel, this promise of God with us, right? So what we're talking about in these stories that we're gonna go through for these four weeks is, is what happens when we have this unexpected experience or this encounter with the idea of God with us. Now, for those of you who grew up celebrating Advent, you know that this is the four Sundays before Christmas that we join with the, the worldwide church, right? That the body of Christ is uh, around the world globally and also historically to, to, to wait and for expectation and celebration of, of Christ being birthed into the world. But like I said, with Advent, we're holding more than one thing, right? One of the things we hold is this idea that, that God with us is made president in, in heaven coming to earth, right? God with us is made present in the, the one who lived in radiance, taking on skin and becoming flesh and bone and moving into our neighborhood. Uh, the, the, the Greeks, when they interacted with this, they called this advent, they called it parousia, because for them, it wasn't just the idea that Christ came in the form of a baby, but the early Christians looked at it as parousia, advent, the return of the king. So in advent, we have to hold both this celebration of, of what God has done and there's this anticipation of what God will do. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux in the, the, the middle times, I guess I was going to say middle century, but that's not what the term I wanted, the middle ages, right, kind of summed it all up and says, well, actually, when I think about God coming, it, it happens three ways, right? I, I think of God coming in the form of the baby, Jesus, right, incarnation. I also think about God coming as, as a king at the end of the age. But as Christians, we need to God to come every single day, right? We need Advent every single day. We need incarnation every single day. We need God to come into the flesh every single day. And I think that's beautiful because it's a reminder to us that, like, we need God, and that's okay. It's a reminder to, to us that, like, we are not going to have all the answers, not be able to figure it all out, that we need this anticipation of God showing up. And what a blessing to us that our God responds to that, right? What a blessing to us that in our lowest of lows, our God can show up. What a blessing to us that even when we don't feel like we're up front and, and doing those things that are seen, that our God sees us. So this three-way Advent is kind of what we're holding on to as we encounter Emmanuel. What does it mean that God has come? What does it mean that God will come? But what does it also mean that right now, God is coming in our flesh, in the flesh, in our hearts, right? And, and so that's what we're trying to hold on in this season. Now, as I thought about Advent this week, especially as we kind of channel our thoughts towards peace, which is our focus of this morning, I think about how, like, sometimes we dress up Advent as, um, as an interruption, right? But we, we were sanctified, folks. So we sanctify, we call it a holy interruption, right? The idea that the world had their status quo and God interrupts. The real idea is that the world had their whole plan and God is going to actually enter into a point of history. Now, I think that the, the trouble for me anyways, I, I realize that sometimes I think of Advent as almost like an invasion, right? Which is really, really tricky for my Anabaptist tendencies, right? Like, like God doesn't invade. And if you look at the fact that he comes as a baby, that's not really an invasion either, right? If you're going to invade, you don't pick a cute baby and say, let's go invade, right? Um, so this, this holy interruption that happens is not an invasion, but I think there's also times when we look at Advent and Christ breaking in as an intrusion, right? As this outsider from up high coming down low. But I think all of those kind of mislead us into what's really happening here. And as we go into this story that's going to uh, flesh out what does it mean by peace, we'll see that God coming in the form of a baby or God coming in glory is not just an interruption or an invasion or an intrusion. It's actually intentional implementation of God's plan. 
So that's what's happening in Advent. I think this story helps us flesh it out. So what we're looking at is different groups. Last week we started with hope. And we talked about the prophets, right? How the prophets of old all pointed towards the hope of a Messiah will come. Today we're going to meet a young teenage woman, or a young teenage girl really, who, who encounters an angel. And, and so that's why we're saying this isn't just about encountering Christ the Savior. This is encountering the idea of God with us. And we're going to see what she wrestled with in that encounter. And in looking at that, we'll see how it points us to hope. Because that's what we're trying to do. If we're focusing on how Jesus has come and what God has done, we're in the past. If we're just looking to the future for what God will do or Jesus come again, we're in the future. But like we said last week, we only live in the present. So the reminder to us is that God encounters us in this present. So before the already and the not yet is the encounter. So the, the, the framing question I want you to hold on to this morning as we go to our scripture now is, how does encountering Emmanuel, remember we're saying Emmanuel, not just Christ, not just Jesus, right? How does encountering the idea of God with us, how does that bring you peace? So that's the work we hope to do this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 26 to 38. We'll also have it up front in the NIV so you can follow there as well. Again, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning that we celebrate, we anticipate, we worship, we follow the God of peace. Lord, we thank you that the peace that you bring is the peace that makes things right with us and you. It's the peace that makes things right with us in creation, us and our sisters and brothers and even ourselves. But Lord, we also thank you that this peace that you bring, the peace that you offer us, is a peace that's permanent. It's a peace that's based on relationship. It's a peace that covenants with us and makes us part of your family, part of the body of Christ. But Lord, this peace is also a promise, a promise that you see us, a promise that you hold us, a promise that you've been faithful and you will be faithful, and a promise that you desire to enter in. So Lord, we pray that our lives are filled not simply with holy interruptions, but with us being able to see how you're intentionally implanting or your plan for the world. So we thank you for Mary. We thank you for her witness and testimony. And we pray that in this story, Lord, we may learn a little bit more of what it means to live with the peace that you desire to give to us. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So one of the things we like to do um, on this time of year when we talk about these four themes of hope, peace, joy, and love is to start off with our understanding, commonly understanding of, of, of the theme of the day. So today is peace, right? Now for some of us when we think about peace or our understanding of peace, it, it's tranquility, right? It's silence, it's calm. You know, for those of you who hike, it's like getting to the top of the mountain and breathing, right? Or if you have a lake by your house, it's like the, when it's quiet and then peaceful and you sit by it. For those of you who are blessed with children, it's when everyone goes to sleep, right? Like that's the time. Like the new one I discovered was last year. Our kids are finally uh, are in school all day, right? So I remember last September I dropped them off and it was like 8.45 and like no one was in the car and I was just like, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. You just keep them all the time, you know? Like you just, we do this every day, you know? I remember my, my youngest daughter came home. She's like, I think I'm done with school. I'm like, honey, you got like 13 more years to go, like chill out here, you know? But, but for some of us, when we think about peace, it's that idea of tranquility, right? Silence, calm, right? 
But I also think there's an there's a even more pressing one that maybe we don't feel as much on this side of the Atlantic in our country, in our borders, but it's also a piece that definitely speaks to the absence of war. Not just conflict, right? Not just a, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting with my boss or I'm beefing with my neighbor or me and my sister aren't talking. Like, that's important. But for some people, when they think about peace, right, it's the absence of war. If you're in Ukraine this morning, you're praying for peace. If you're in Burma or Myanmar, right, right, you're praying for peace. If you're in Ethiopia, Eritrea, or, or, or especially the Tigray region, you're praying for peace, right? And that's not just like, again, like this idea, like you want people to actually stop being killed, right? You want the peace of God to, to intrude in that way and to invade and then to stop the warfare. So there is this absence of war, absence of conflict idea when it comes to peace, right? But for some of us, peace is also harmony, right? And I don't know enough about music, so I can't explain how that makes sense. But if you music people, you figure that part out. Right? But you know what I know about? It's food. So I'm going to tell you about harmony with food, right? And some of you know what's coming. You know, just brace yourself. You know what's coming. There's peanut butter and jelly. Just fits together. It's beautiful, right? There is talenti sea salt caramel. Doesn't seem like it makes sense, but it fits together. It's beautiful. There's kale in my trash can. It fits together. It's beautiful. Right? Like they all just go together, right? But but another way I've seen harmony recently is through this thing called the World Cup. You know, during the, the pandemic, I was able to connect online with a, a bunch of, uh, we call it soccer here, but football fans around the world, right? And a bunch of us all cheer for teams in London, right? Like different teams. And, and it's funny because in America, we think we have rivalries, right? Like Yankees, Red Sox rivalry, right? I went to a Tuesday afternoon game in London, right? It was Millwall, which is kind of like, I would say almost like a Steelton, right, against uh, Fulham, which would be like Harrisburg. And on a Tuesday afternoon, the people were so much in their rivalry, they were throwing beers, right? Like, I was just sitting there talking to my friend, my, my business, I smacked in the side of the face. And I'm like, wow, we Americans really think we do rivalry, right? Like, this is a Tuesday afternoon. Don't, they didn't even wait for the weekend, you know? Like, like so, so all this group of us who are on this online chat, there's been this weird harmony when the World Cup happens, right? Where we're all just like now cheering for the same countries and the, the same team. And there's this harmony. It's almost like a peace, right? We're like, listen, we're on holiday is what they call it in the UK. We're on holiday from beefing with each other. We're just going to have harmonious interaction rooting for our team, right? And, 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 but, but if you're a U.S. soccer fan, yesterday wasn't very harmonious, Right? Like, now the Dutch first goal, that was harmonious, right? Like, if you don't follow soccer, they call it a beautiful game. Basically, the U.S., this is my, my summation of the first 15 minutes. This was the U.S., right? And this was the Dutch. Boop, 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 go, beauty. You know, it was just like, like, they just like, it was like precision, like five passes. They just split us open, scored a goal, and I was just like, wow, we got a long way to go. But it was harmonious. It was beautiful. It gave me peace, even though I was rooting against them. I'm just like, that was so beautiful, I can't say anything, right? Peace. But I think for all of us, though, whether it's tranquility or this idea of absence of war or, or harmony, all of us are in need of peace in the now in the form of rest, right? Like there, there, there's, there's sometimes we have oppressive thoughts and emotions, right? There, there's sometimes like our minds kind of just run with things and it's just like, how do we ever catch up, right? There, there, there's also times that we also are dealing with overwhelming expectations, expectations we put on ourselves, expectations others put on to us, expectations we think we need to have, and it's just it's overwhelming, it's grinding us down, right? And then there's another one about overtaxing busyness, right? One of my spiritual disciplines the last three years, I'm failing at it, but I'm trying my best, right? And when people ask you, how are you doing, right? My default answer is what? Busy. Like, that's not a good thing, you know? It's just like, like, that's something we have to, we need rest, right? We need peace from. So whether it's the, over, the, the overwhelming expectations or oppressive thoughts and emotions or just the busyness, like, we need to remember that our God has built within us a need for rest. And it's called Sabbath. And even when it comes to Sabbath, there's basically two core tenets of Sabbath, right? One, you have to unplug, right? And then you have to reconnect to God. And I think that the, the, the trouble with us with Sabbath is that either we don't unplug and we try to reconnect with God and wonder why that's not happening, or we unplug and forget to reconnect with God, right? Like Sabbath and that rest that, that, that comes from, from battling these oppressive thoughts, emotions, overwhelming expectations, your overtaxing busyness, is to actually unplug, but then use that time to reconnect with God. So when we think about peace, that's generally our baseline understanding, right? Absence of war. Tranquility, harmony, rest. Well, biblically, there's this idea of shalom. 
And shalom kind of uses that as maybe the, the, the first step, right? So if you're in college, that's like 101, right? The next level is looking at, at peace as this all-encompassing thing that God does. And in Scripture, Paul talks about this a lot. In fact, in Ephesians, he says, in Christ, right, we can have peace with God. And that's a fascinating. We just got through studying in Ephesians, right? Like, this is the same Paul who writes to the people and says, listen, we were once aliens and strangers. We were once enemies. We were once darkness. Yet in Christ, we can have peace with God. Like, that's an amazing reality you're living in. That because of what Jesus has done on Calvary's tree, you're already elevated to the heavens, right? You're already elevated in God's eyes. You're seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. You can have peace with God. But also in Ephesians, remember, Paul talks about, hey, there's two ways that we see God active in the world in the book of Ephesians. One is in your salvation, but two, it's in you being the church. It's you being an intentional multicultural community. It's you being a place where everyone can belong. It's you being a place where people can come from all these different backgrounds and you can call yourselves family. And so the idea of peace with God is that we are also ought to have peace with one another. And if I have to do a quick summary of Christian history the last 2,000 years, I would say for the most part, we've gotten peace with God right. Right? It's undeniable that Christianity has grown, right? We went from on the day of Pentecost, maybe a hundred people to now a billion strong. And that doesn't count the people still to come or the people who have come. We've done okay with peace with God. But if we look at 2,000 years of Christian history, we haven't done well with peace with one another. Because it is we, the Christians, who have fought in the wars. It is we, the Christians, who have built the empires. It is we, the Christians, who have actually oppressed our brothers and sisters. It is we, the Christians, who have chosen worldly kingdoms over the empire of God and oppressed our sisters and brothers. We ought to have peace with God, yes. But if your peace with God isn't leading to peace with your brother and sister, do you really have peace with God? In Shalom, we have the access to peace with God, peace with each other, but also peace with creation. Again, in Colossians, Paul writes that Jesus, that God has now fitted all under his feet. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who's a redeemer? I think there's so many of us who look at the earth and we're like, I can't wait till it all burns away, right? But guess what? If you read the book of Revelation, it doesn't burn away at all. It turns out the new heaven, new earth is again heaven coming down because we serve a God who redeems. We serve a God who restores. So if we want peace with creation, we ought to be getting our hands dirty in the dirt and taking care of this creation. Because guess what? God's desire is to redeem it, not destroy it. So if we're actively working to do more destruction to our planet, do we really have peace with God? And that last one, which I think is the one that we've kind of really doubled down in this pandemic and we're seeing, is that we need peace with ourselves. And Shalom affords that too. No matter where you read, you will find that in this pandemic, in this country, we're struggling with loneliness perhaps greater than we've ever struggled before. We're struggling with our mental health. We're struggling with, with isolation. We're struggling with this idea of being alone. And I'm not going to say here I have the solution to all of that. But I am going to say that I think it's important for us to remember that God wants us to have peace even in our struggles. That God wants to meet us, right? I'm reminded of Jesus in Matthew 6, right? He has that great little verse at the end of Matthew 6 where he says, so I grew up New King James, so you forgive me, right? But it says, sufficient for the day is its trouble. And Pastor Woody summarized that years ago with probably one of the best sermons he ever preached. I don't remember what passage it was. It's probably Matthew 6 maybe. But what I remember was this phrase that he said, right? Wait to worry. And I've kind of taken that and kind of put it into my spirit, right? I've imbibed it and I've drank it. I've kind of made it part of my person. It's like, that's my prayer is that we wait to worry. And in Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't say, hey, your problems are over. <laughs> it doesn't say, hey, now you believe in me, you won't have any more problems. You won't have any more worries. You won't have any more struggles. But he does say, no, no, no. Even in the midst of these problems, these worries, these struggles, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God. I want you to trust me. Because the birds don't worry, the trees and the flowers don't worry, you should try not to worry. And the best way you do that is to trust me, to work for me. And I love that. Because I have found in my life, when I take the focus off of me and I put it on God, right? Or when I take the focus off of what I need to do and start saying, God, what do you want me to do? It helps a little bit more, makes it a little bit easier to have peace. And it doesn't mean that the problems go away or I don't have to deal with them, but it does mean I can breathe. 
because I start to see God working and moving and being in my everyday scenes. So in Christ, the foundational thinking of shalom is that you can have peace with God. You can have peace with creation. You can have peace with your sister and brother. You can even have peace with yourself. I have a friend who's a pastor out in California, and she, she pastors what's called a Hebrew Roots Church, right? And the first time I met her, I was just like, that just seems weird. Like, are you Messianic Jews? And like, no, no, we're not Messianic Jews. I was like, so what are you, right? And, and so my definition of how she would say they're a Hebrew Roots Church is that there's some of us who, you know, suffered through Hebrew in seminary. You know, like, we suffered. And there's people who actually love the language, right? Then there's some of us who, like, fight our way through the definitions and stuff. And there's people who not only know the definitions, but they know the culture and the language, and they think that that culture and language still has stuff to teach us today. And, and so, so that's what they're trying to tap into. So she's really connected with a, a bunch of Jewish rabbis that's part of her, her faith work and journey is saying that like, not only does the Old Testament matters, we need to hear from people who actually are still living this thing because they might have a more nuanced understanding than we do. And guess what? In that conversation, she taught me something about shalom because I had shalom as the foundation, right? As the broth to your soup, as the foundation to your house, as this all-encompassing thing. For in these words of this one rabbi that she knows, I found that the peace that God affords us isn't just foundational, isn't just big picture. It's also meant to be for today meant to be for right now, meant to be in your everyday scenes. This rabbi um, is uh, out of Houston, Texas. His name is Robert Kahn. And he says, you know, there's, 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 there's certain distinctives between the peace of Rome, right, the peace the world brings, and the Hebrew idea of shalom. So we need to hold on to shalom as like peace with God, peace with creation, peace with self, uh, peace with sister and brother. But in the everyday, what does it look like? He says this. He says, one can dictate a peace. Shalom is a mutual agreement. Peace is a temporary pact. Shalom is a permanent agreement. One can make a peace treaty. Shalom is a condition of peace. Peace can be negative, as in the absence of commotion. Shalom is always positive, the presence of serenity. Peace can be partial. Shalom is whole. Peace can be piecemeal. Shalom is complete. And so as we think about how we encounter God with us in the now, in the midst of our worries, our struggles, our fears, our, our, our doubts, right? How does God interact with us now? I think it helps us to learn and go back on some of the things he just said. Knowing that the peace of God is a mutual agreement, not a dictation. That when God comes to us, he's coming for a relationship. And I don't know about you, right? This is a season of giving and gifts, right? I have never received a gift that I've never received. Right? I want us to think about that for a second. Like, it doesn't matter how great the gift is. doesn't matter how much I want the gift. doesn't matter how much I want to reach out for the gift. Until I take the gift into my possession, I don't receive it. Peace with God is the same way. It doesn't have to be this intangible thing we're chasing and we'll never get, but it's that knowing reality that when Jesus leaves heaven to come to earth, when the Holy Spirit leaves the, 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 well, not even leaves, when the Holy Spirit enters into the Christian, when I would argue the body of Christ wraps around the Christian, we can have peace with God. Because we're entering into this mutual agreement that I belong to you and you belong to me too. That mutual agreement means that we have to choose. We have to choose to accept this peace that comes from God. It's not going to be automatic. And for some of us, it's going to be every day. And for most of us, it might be multiple times a day, right? Because you might have peace with God and have a good morning until they cut you off on the road, right? You might have peace with God and you had a good week until your boss said something they shouldn't have said to you, right? You might have peace with God until anything, a spouse, a child, a friend, right? We need multiple times a day to re-enter into this agreement. And God's not going to force his peace upon us. We have to choose to accept it. But I'm also glad that even though the temporary things can steal my peace and maybe steal my joy, that God's peace is permanent. It's permanent. And I get it. You might be saying this morning, I don't feel the peace of God. I'm chasing the peace of God. But I still want you to know that it's always available to you. God is always going to give you peace. Because that's what God desires, right? And, and, and it might take a long time to get there. 
It might take a lot of work and, and journeying to get there. But the idea of the peace that God's offer isn't just to just get you through the day. It's to get you through this life. It's not just to get you through this problem. It's to get you to the solution. It's not just to get you to, like, hold on. It's to get you to let go and hold on to God and not yourself for the problem. So the, the, this peace is, is, is permanent. Another thing the rabbi said is that peace is a condition and not the goal. And I love that. Because if something is a condition, I already have possession of it. If it's a goal, I'm always working towards it. Right? You being in relationship with God means that you have access to God's peace. Whether it's through the scripture that might comfort you in a time of, of struggle. Whether it's the body of Christ that might comfort you in a time where you need more faith. Or whether it's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Or Jesus who's been faithful to you in the past. You have access to that peace. It's not a condition. It's not, I mean, it's not a goal. It's a condition that you have. And so the, the struggle for us becomes, though, how do we hold on to this peace? How do we have a, a, a wholesome peace, not just part of it? How do we have this complete peace? I think it helps to look at the story of Mary with this lens. Because when we come to Mary, we'll find that there's nothing in this story that says she's got it all figured out. There's nothing in this story that says all her troubles are going away now that the angel has come to us. Like, there's nothing in this story that says, Mary, I'm going to give you this thing, this great responsibility, and everything's going to work out. You're going to be great. You don't have to worry anymore, right? But in this story, there's things we learn in that how the peace of God can be given to us. The first thing we learn about Mary is that she's from Nazareth. And I have to apologize for the three people in our congregation who live in Oberlin. Right? I've been saying Nazareth is this little town. Like, you you kind of know where it is, but you don't know where it is. I apologize. Nazareth was a little bit bigger than Oberlin. Nazareth was closer to Shirenstown, right? Now, like, that, that makes it maybe four people know where Shirenstown is, right? Like, the idea of Nazareth is that you know it's near places, but you drive through it all the time, right? The only people who know where it is are people who live there, all five of them, right? Like, that's what Nazareth was. It was this little uh, uh, working-class community uh, uh, of Shirenstown. That, that's kind of like our, our gauge, if you want to do it, right? It's not... Dillsburg, it's not Mechanicsburg, it's not Harrisburg, it's not Hershey, it's Shirenstown, right? So, so the, the, the beauty of that for me, though, is this reminder <laughs> that our God sees us wherever we are, right? It doesn't, you don't need to be Bethlehem or Jerusalem for God to see you. You might be Oberlin where Hank don't see you, but God sees you. You might be Shirenstown where Hank can't wait to drive through you, but God sees you, right? Like, like that's what's happening here is that Nazareth becomes known not just for Mary, but Jesus of Nazareth. They get put on the map reminding us that you might think where you are doesn't matter. You might think what you're doing doesn't matter. You might think no one sees what you're doing. But Nazareth may be a reminder to you that God sees it, that God honors it, and that God is seeing what you're doing. Praise God, right? Not only from whom all blessings flow, but praise God who sees us. God sees you. The second thing that's fascinating about Mary that we learned is she's betrothed. Uh, a couple of days ago, one of my friends sent me a text and was just like, are there any words we use in church but not anywhere else? I was like, yes, a lot of them, like betrothed, right? Like there's no other example. There's probably nowhere else you're going to use that word, right? I'm betrothed, at least not anymore, right? But I think what's significant about this betrothal is we have to remember Jewish marriage relations, right? There's a lot of understanding that we, we sometimes bring into it. We're like, well, back then they had arranged marriages. You know, the dads would get together and, and they would make an agreement and that's how they would get married. Generally, that's how it worked in the ancient Near East. Historically, that's how it worked in most of, like not even Christianity, most of the world up until three, 400 years ago when we discovered maybe love, romance, I don't know, maybe. Like, you can argue if we even really discovered that, but that's another conversation, right? But I think what's fascinating about ancient Near East, especially Jewish weddings, though, it wasn't just based on what the dad said, right? Like, especially truly Jewish weddings, or at least I would say God's Old Testament people, there was agency giving to the, the young maiden, right? Meaning that your dads can get together and make a deal. But if he comes with his suitor, his son, and the, the, the young girl looks at him like, he stinks. Like, I don't want him. Get him out of here, right? Like, she wouldn't accept it, right? So I think when we hold on to this betrothal, a lot of people look at it and it says, like, well, does that mean that she belongs to him? No, it's an engagement. 
But it's engagement that shows us that Mary and Joseph have an actual relationship. It shows us that they actually chose each other. It shows us that, like, she belongs to him and he belongs to her, right? Like, that's something that's very, very significant. Why is that significant? Well, because Joseph, remember we said that incarnation isn't just about interruption, invasion, intrusion. It's intentional implementation, right? One of the first things we learn about Joseph is what? He's the son of David through the line of Solomon, meaning that Joseph wasn't just some backwater Shimonstown carpenter. He was actually part of God's royal family. Like, that's significant, right? Like, this isn't just some random carpenter. The guy's like, hey, you can be stepdad to my son. You know, like, no, this is actually someone from the line of David. And remember when God made that promise to David that the Messiah would come through him, God says, your son's going to reign on the throne forever. Joseph is a representation of that royal line. Hold on to that, right? As you think about God's intentional implementation, hold on to that. Let's get back to Mary. The word that's used for virgin or maiden is associated to women in that time who are 14 years old or younger. So I want you to sit with that, not just because it's awkward, because like it's different back times, but I want you to sit with a 14-year-old who's having this interaction with God, this encounter with the angel of God, trying to process all these things, right? Like, that's where you got to actually hold the humanity of Mary. Like, she's not just saying this because of a lack of faith. She's saying this because she's trying to figure it out. What are you really saying to me? But let's talk about Mary, too. Because when we talk about God's intentional implementation, you'll be reminded that when we have Mary's genealogy, we also learn that Mary is, too, a daughter of David. That Mary also comes from the royal line of David. But the addition that she has is that while Joseph comes through Solomon and the royal line, Mary comes through Nathan and the priestly line. So again, this Joseph and Mary aren't just two random people. They're people God has chosen since the beginning of time, right? And in, jo in, in Joseph, you have, this is the son of David. But in Mary, you have, this is the daughter of Nathan. Because the Messiah had to be not just royal, but the high priest. So even in their union, you have God's intentionality of bringing them together. So when you say that, that, that God has chosen and God has called them, there's an intentionality. Even Gabriel has intentionality. The people in the, the ancient Near East, the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament times, uh, kind of had this elevated view of angels, right? Like, I think we kind of do guardian angels, kind of. Like, we don't even know what that means, but we just say it, you know? Um, but they kind of looked at these angels as messengers of God. And two of the ones that showed up a lot in the Old Testament are Gabriel and Michael. So they, they made the executive decision, like, they must be important. <laughs> if they keep showing up with these important messages, they must be important. But what's fascinating to me about Gabriel is that Gabriel is called by God. And it's not just, oh, Gabriel's a messenger of God, go do this, right? But Gabriel has a history of hearing God, listening to God, um, taking out the mission God gives him, and actually delivering, Right? I think that's significant because a lot of times when we talk about being called, right, it's about God told me to do this or God's put this on my heart. But according to what we learned from Gabriel, calling also has to be hearing God, responding to God, being told by God what to do, and actually doing it. So calling can just be like, God has called me to do this. Where is the fruit? Calling can just be like, God's gifted me to do this. How are you using that gift? Right? Calling can't just be like, this is what God says, if you're not doing it. So Gabriel himself is, is called by God. And so when he comes to deliver another message, he says, listen, Mary, God chose you. And then I, we end the passage of Mary multiple times hearing that she's favored. But what I love is that last answer. And we'll go back to the passage, but I want to share the last answer of Mary at the end of this. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me fulfilled. I think that's how we have God's peace. It doesn't mean that we're going to have the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean we're going to know exactly how everything's going along. But it does mean that if we're willing to say, Lord, I'm your servant, may your word be fulfilled, then we get a step closer to peace. Now, when Gabriel comes to Nazareth, I think it's fascinating that before he tells Mary the plan of God, he ensures Mary what? That God is with you. That you're called and again, if calling is more than God just give me this gift or God told me to do this, if calling is actually fruit 
of what God has called you to do. Like, you actually have a lifetime of saying, now she's 14, so she might not have a long list as Gabriel does, but she still has a list. When God says you're called to do something, it is not just, hey, you need to try it, right? It's I have put these gifts in you. I have taken you through this life experience. I have prepared you to do this thing, right? So, so Gabriel goes to Mary and says, you're favored. And in this encounter, Gabriel wants her to know what? God is with you. And I think that's a way that we can not only have peace, but that we can give peace to one another. Because if we're breathing on this side of heaven, we're interacting with people who need peace. We're living in bodies that need peace. We were interacting with people who are struggling or we ourselves are struggling too. Right? And I think that's the joy of Christian community. That's what it's supposed to be. That where I'm weak, you're strong. That where I have doubt, you have faith. That when I can't sing up to the heavens, your voice might raise me up too, right? And you might actually be on key, so praise God for you. The idea here is that when we come together, like, how do we have this peace? It has to be the reminder that God is with us. And I think when we're struggling, you know, Rachel in her announcement talked about how it's, it's important for us to encourage the pastors. That's awesome. Do that, right? But I think it's even more important that you encourage one another, because we don't know what everyone's going through. Because here's the thing, as a society, as a culture, we're really good at holding in and trying to hold on. But that's very anti-human. Like you're meant to be in community, right? You're meant to do this life together with people. You're not meant to do this on your own. So if you're just holding in and holding on, it's hard to have peace. Maybe it's time to open your hands to let go a little bit. And to let someone else grab that hand. And maybe eventually you'll feel God's hand is already wrapped around yours too. If we want this peace with God, we have to get to a point where we're not just holding on and holding in, but we're actually opening ourselves up to God. And, and then sometimes you can do that just by a quick email or call. Say, I've been praying for you. They say, hey, I don't know all the details of what's going on, but God is with you. Because that little word might be enough to help them have peace and get through that day. But I think I want to get back to Mary, too, because I always focus on the biology of this, right? I've always focused on she's 14, she's a maiden, she's not married, so she's like, hey, Gabriel, this sounds great, <laughs> you know, but, like, I live in the real world, right? Like, how are we going to explain this, right? I think that's also important because Mary isn't just talking about the stigma and the shame or how people will assume she's in sin. But she's also dealing with the fact that everything she knows about her life and everything she knows about God has changed. Everything. Her entire life, she was like, listen, I'm going to find the one, or God's going to send the one that's supposed to be for me. We're going to build a life together. Remember in John 14 when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also, right? Uh, in my father's house, there's many rooms, right? That is actually a Jewish love poem. That's a love poem that every groom would have said to their bride. Because what would happen back then is after the dads came together, made the agreement, they'd bring you before the girl, which is kind of embarrassing because it's like a whole party. If she says, no, you just got to go home. You know, she's like, there's a whole engagement party. And she's like, actually, mm, don't want Hank. Bye, right? It's just like, bye-bye party, right? But, but, but at this party, if she says yes, right, at this party, the groom would actually leave the party. And the groom would say, listen, I love you, Mary, but I got to go to my father's house, right? My father's house has a lot of rooms, but I'm going to go and prepare a place that we can stay in, right? And, and the grooms are usually young, so they're not that bright. You know, so they would build the house, and the dad would be like, I know you want your wife to move in, but you don't have a roof, right? So then they would have to work on it a little bit more and be like, I know you want her to move in, but you got to at least pretend to build a stove area or somewhere that she can cook or you can cook, right? So, the, so only the father knew the time that was ready. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because in John 14, Jesus isn't just using wedding language, but Mary, this was her idea. So when we're saying she's engaged to Joseph, this is not just our father's made a deal. This is people who have a relationship, who are building a life together, and more than likely, Joseph is away or at least working towards building a house that's going to be a home for them. So she's contending with all of this at 14, right? She's contending with the idea that, like, what is my family going to think? What are my neighbors going to think? How am I going to explain this? How's Joseph going to receive this? Everything I know and I believe about God, it's all gone. Like, I got to start over. But even in that, right, God says what? I can make your impossible possible too. So you're worried about this virgin birth, but remember Elizabeth, your cousin. 
I think this is also significant because there's a good chance that Elizabeth didn't have social media. Shocker. I know, right? Um, I'm on Facebook now, and I feel like there's a lot of people at Elizabeth age who are on Facebook a little too much. I'm not going to be ageist and call any of you out. Um, but it's the 55-plus classics. Y'all spend way too much time on there. All right, people talk all about the young people on social media. In my experience, y'all spend a little too much time on social media. Y'all need peace from social media. That's just me, right? But there's a good chance that because Elizabeth didn't have social media and they didn't have telephones, right, there's a good chance that when Gabriel tells her that Elizabeth is pregnant, this is the first time that Mary's hearing about it. And this is a reminder to us that when God says, I can make your impossible possible, Mary is over there thinking, it's like, I'm a virgin. I've never been with anyone. How am I going to give birth? Like, what is this going to happen? And Gabriel looks her dead in the eye and says, listen, the Baron Elizabeth, who you've been praying for all your life, has a kid in her belly. And not only does she have a kid in her belly, six months, six months, God is already doing the impossible. And I love that when Mary finally sees, because here's another pathway to peace. It's submission. It's submission. Like when she finally sees God moving, she gets to a point where she says, what? I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. So our first question, we'll wrap with this, has been, what, how does encountering Emmanuel, how does encountering God with us bring us peace? Well, I think I, I've been saying peace so much this week that I was reminded of the great generation in the 60s. We'll call them the peace children. You might have other flattering names for them, right? But they had this language called love child, right? Like, and again, I don't know what they meant by it, but this is what I mean by it. I think the peace of God is really the love child or the fruit of Christian hope. Do you remember what we said that hope is last week, right? Trust and faith in what God has done, but then also trust and faith in what God will do. So I believe if you want peace in the now, you have to marry and bring together that God has been faithful and hold on to that God will be faithful. Because if you're living right here, right, you got to say, God, thank you for being faithful here. And because of here, I'm going to trust here and here. So when you bring those together, you have a love child, and that is peace. If you want peace, remember how God has been faithful to you. If you want peace, remember the promises of God for you in the future. Because this peace in the now is also the fruit of your faith. And I think that's the hard part for us. Because here's the thing, Mary is not guaranteed no conflict, right? She's still going to have to be a teenage mother. Now, she went and lived with Elizabeth, but there's a good chance Elizabeth had neighbors, and neighbors probably had mouths that talked, right? There's a good chance that no one, I mean, think about this from a very practical understanding. If a young lady you love comes to you and says, I'm pregnant, you're like, oh, okay, by the Holy Spirit. Well, we got to have a conversation, <laughs> You know, like, I think we, we miss that aspect of the humanity of Mary. Like, she still has to deal with this, right? But how does she have peace? She submits to the will of God. She says, God, thank you for choosing me. I'm going to be faithful to you. She says, God, I don't have it all together, all figured out. But if you've called me to do this, I'm going to walk in it. We're going to close by singing a song, Tremble, that we've sang before. And I love this song for many reasons. But it talks about the peace that's available to us when the, the seas are raging. You know, it talks about the, the peace that's available to us when our fears are loud and they need to be silenced. Uh, when the darkness is overwhelming to us. But I want us to just hold on to the simple truth that God does tell us and Jesus does ensure us that in this world we will have trouble. But I give you my peace. Jesus doesn't promise us that because we believe, all the troubles will go away. In fact, I might even argue that when you believe, you see more trouble. Right? Not just that you experience, but when other people experience it too, you become almost like an empath. You feel that pain too, right? In this world, you will have trouble, but I give you my peace. But as we sing this song, right, I want us to be reminded that our Lord, our Savior, our Jesus, our Christ has overcome the world. And whatever struggle, whatever trouble you're holding on to, the peace of God is available to you today. And it starts with saying, yes, Lord, I'm your servant. I will follow. I will trust you.
As Pastor Hannah and the worship team comes up, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you. Um, maybe you want to respond to something in the service. Maybe as you think about peace, you know, you need God to give you peace in a certain area. Or maybe there's someone on your mind that you prayed that God's peace would reach them. Um, so we'd like to invite you to, to come up for prayer as well. But again, as we stand and sing, I want you to use this song as a reminder that God's peace is available you just got to not only accept it, but you got to pray for him to keep giving to you and making it apparent to you. Let's stand and sing together. Mary's interaction with with um, Gabriel, you know, the the baby comes right, and 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 again we said that like the peace that's promised doesn't take away all the struggle, doesn't take away all the things she has to face, it doesn't take away all the hardships that's still ahead. But what I love is that the story of Mary, at least in this end, it ends with this beautiful song that that theologians have now called the Mary's Magnificat, right? And it's a reminder to us, right, that when God has this encounter with us, when God calls us, when God equips us. We might not have all the answers, but we can still praise. We might not know how it's going to end perfectly, but we can still sing songs of praise to our God, right? Like, our job isn't to know 
perfectly how it's all going to happen, perfectly how it's all going to end. Our job isn't even to know, some of you will be encouraged by this, right? Our job isn't even to make it make sense, right? Like, let God make it make sense. Let the spirit move, right? Let the church wrap around you, but you can still praise. And you start by saying, Lord, I'm your servant, and I'm going to be faithful to you. So for our benediction, I wanted to, I, I did this a couple years ago, but move around the words of Mary because I think she's praying for herself, but I think she's also praying for us. So our benediction is going to be in, in, in Luke or what's called Mary's Magnificat, but instead of saying my, I made it our, right? Because she brought Jesus into the world, but we get him too, right? So let's pray together. Our souls glorify the Lord, and our spirit rejoices in God our Savior, for he has been mindful of his humble state of his servants. From now on, all generations will be blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for us. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From one generation to another generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servants through the church, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants of faith forever, just as he promised our ancestors, our God of peace. We thank you that even today, despite the seas being a little bit rowdier than we'd like, despite the darkness being a little bit heavier than we'd like, despite the fears and the doubts being a little bit louder than we like, we thank you that you can give us peace. So Lord, help us to accept peace, not only foundationally that through Christ we can be right with you, we can be right with the world, creation, ourselves, but help us to accept that we can enter into this relationship with you where you see us, Lord, where you meet us, whether we're in Shirenstown or Nazareth, where you see us, whether we're doing great things or little things, where you see us, whether or not anyone else sees. But God, we also thank you that if we're willing to not only accept the peace that you offer, but accept our role to play, to say, Lord, I am your servant. Lord, I pray that as we go into our everyday scenes, we can all, even right now in this moment, rededicate ourselves and our lives to you. That in this moment, we can say, Lord, I am your servant. Help me to not only hold and feel your peace, but to give your peace too. So the God of peace, we thank you that it's permanent. We thank you that it's complete. We thank you that it's whole. We thank you that it's afforded to us. We thank you that it's gifted to us. We thank you that Jesus, our Prince of Peace, is the one who leads and guides us. Holy Spirit, help us to not only see the peace of God in the world, see the peace of God through our actions, but see the peace of God every single day. Lord, for those of us who are struggling, whether it's, again, overwhelming expectations or overtaxing busyness, whether we're struggling with just these, these thoughts that we can't shake, with loneliness, with isolation, God, grant us peace. Grant us peace through you. Grant us peace through our sisters and brothers around us. Grant us peace through the presence of you in our lives. Lord, we thank you so much that in all these things we can rely on you. We thank you for Mary and her testimony and her witness that life may not be what we imagine, but you desire something greater. That we can have plans and you always will have greater plans. That we may not know how it all works out, but you do. And you do it with love, with gentleness, with kindness, with grace, with compassion, with mercy, with peace. Our God of peace, we thank you for today. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.